This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Biotech. The future of hydrogen is here, and Biotech is leading the way by disrupting the established centralized hydrogen supply chain with a new highly efficient model of local production hubs. Biotech produces hydrogen close to demand and transports it via high-pressure, high-capacity storage trailers. Fewer truck trips translates to lower transportation costs, lower emissions, and safer roads. It's the first step in making hydrogen more affordable and accessible today. Visit Biotech.us to learn how Biotech makes hydrogen easy. From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me from a few blocks down the road here in Washington is Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. And on this episode of EAH, we are honored to be joined by our special co-host and one of our most popular former guests on the show, Alicia Eastman, co-founder and president of Intercontinental Energy, who has graciously agreed to make the time in her incredibly busy schedule to help Patrick and I turn the tables on Chris and put him on the hot seat this time around. As our listeners are no doubt aware, Chris Jackson is the founder and CEO of Proteum Green Solutions based in London. Proteum is a hydrogen energy services company that designs, develops, finances, owns, and operates clean hydrogen solutions for clients to achieve net zero energy emissions at their industrial and manufacturing sites. Chris will talk to us about the Proteum story and also give us some insight into a major project that Proteum recently announced in conjunction with Budweiser Brewing Group UK and Ireland. To that end, in order to get the full story about this project, we are delighted to say that we have yet another great guest on this episode, Tom Brewer, who leads global environmental sustainability efforts at AB InBev, the parent company of Budweiser Brewing Group is joining us for the final segment of the show to talk about how hydrogen fits into AB InBev's vision of a sustainable future for the company and also give us a little bit more insight on the project that they have announced with Proteum. Clearly, we have a lot of ground to cover, but before we get into it, we'd just like to remind everyone that if you have any questions for us here at Everything About Hydrogen, please shoot us an email at info at h2podcast.com or give us a shout on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. All right, let's get this episode started. All right, so Patrick, this is a big day for the EAH podcast. We got a couple of big things on the board. Let's uh, start with the theme here. We've got Proteum and InBev, or AB InBev coming on. But most importantly, we have replaced Chris, possibly permanently, with our most famous uh, past guest, from EAH. We have Alicia Eastman with us. So that is super exciting. Alicia, thank you so much for making the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad I am interchangeable with Chris. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. We think of it as an upgrade. (laughs) We've been trying to get you back on the show and now we may just tell you uh, that you've taken Chris's place. So this is very exciting. No problem. (laughs) But uh, we understand that uh, you were at COP this whole uh, last week or so. How, uh, how was that experience? It was an experience. I mean, I, um, I went for two stints. I didn't stay the entire time. I have no idea how people can go for 12 days straight. Is really, there's something going on every minute. Um, but yeah, it was pretty exciting. I uh, 
was uh, definitely uh, surrounded by more famous people than ever in my life. <laughs> I <laughs> know. I, I believe, <laughs> yeah, Patrick and I uh, were just remarking the other day about how uh, we saw the last picture we saw of you on LinkedIn was uh, right next to Bill Gates. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. I mean, I don't think he would pick me out of a two person lineup, but um, he was really cool. Uh, we were sitting next to each other and. Biden went to the podium right in front of us and a scrum of photographers came, basically jumped all over Bill Gates himself. And he was very cool about it. He was just like, okay. <laughs> He's probably probably gotten used to it at this point, I suppose. And Patrick, what have you been up to this past week? Were you hanging out with uh, any uh, revolutionary founders in the tech world? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, of course. No, that's that's how I spend most of my week. No, uh, I, of course, I wasn't. I also was not at COP, unfortunately. But we did have, um, you know, something that folks who've been listening in will have will have probably seen if they if they were listening into COP. The, the Green Hydrogen Catapult launched and uh, our improved or increased uh, commitment to 45 gigawatts of deployment um, announced at COP as well, but also just, you know, our the membership group there showing a huge, huge ambition and, and really demonstrating the potential for, for for hydrogen around the world, and I think had a few few calls from journalists uh, asking about kind of the the noise and the, the the impact of COP because there's there's been a lot you know there's been positive press there's been negative press but you know from a hydrogen standpoint uh, the kind of the commitment to make this real has been really really encouraging so. Uh, while I wasn't there, I I I got to say I felt I felt pretty pleased with you know the amount of work and the amount of people who are making real efforts in it in the space, Alicia Monson. So uh, yeah. Well, your news definitely made an impact. It was uh, it made it through all of the other news. You know, there was must have been an announcement every other minute, but that one was definitely people paid attention. Very exciting. Yeah. And so, I mean, on that note, guys, uh, before we get to our very illustrious uh, main guest here today, uh, wanted to wanted to ask you both sort of what your big headline takeaways are. I know put you on the spot here and, and uh, see if uh, either of you can identify a couple of couple of the highlights that you guys think were most important coming out of COP, uh, whether those be announcements or discussions that you were involved in or anything like that. So I'd probably change it over to Alicia here on this first one. Well, I had an event that I can't really talk about. <laughs> it was sort of Chatham House rules situation. So I, I can't tell you who was there, but it was uh, a shipping event. And um, I came away from that event feeling extremely optimistic about um, all the first movers in this space, people who are, are really going to take this decarbonization and, you know, not just decarbonization, but no emissions at all, uh, taking it on uh quickly. I mean, they want to move fast. And it's it's obviously not everyone, but it, but it's a lot. And so I, I came away very optimistic. And did you get the feeling, Alicia, that uh, there was a lot of hype around whether or not hydrogen would uh, dominate the stage kind of this year at COP? Did you get the feeling that it did play a pretty big role? Were you, did you feel like it lived up to that hype? Or how did what was your impression on that front? I don't think there was not that sort of is it hype question, which was nice. Like the word hype is like people use it and they think it's positive sounding. And I don't think they realize the connotations that it has. Fair but, point. Fair point. I haven't been known for my positive word choice or great <laughs> word choice all the time. So it's well taken. Understood. No, I think it's um, they didn't really have that discussion. It did have a prominent role. There definitely were a lot of different events and, and different activities around it. And people were excited about it. But I also 
thought, you know, the 30% reduction in methane was was great. Um, there were there were a lot of things unrelated to hydrogen that I, I thought were, were positive. And I mean, when you think about it, this is like, what, 194 countries that have to um, basically negotiate at the same time. It, it's the the permutations of negotiation just boggles the mind. <laughs> um, so it's, it's amazing that any conclusions happen at all. Um, but uh, it's the only way you can do it. I, I mean, I came away pretty positive. Even the protests, they, they didn't seem like protests. They seemed like parades. Uh, yeah. They seemed more like people, you know, being excited about change. So, yeah, um, yeah. that pretty- sounds exciting. Patrick, did you have uh, any? I know you weren't there personally, but uh, from afar, yeah. what were your observations and big takeaways? I think I think the one that that we've got to kind of call out as a a kind of a a bolt from the blue, or I don't know what you'd call it, but the uh, the U.S. China climate pact announcement literally yesterday, and you know at this stage, you know we've had nearly two weeks, there, there was a lot of announcements, there was a huge amount coming out early, and, and all of it very good and, and very important across the, the spectrum. But I don't know who, who saw this one coming, but it, it, it's huge. And um, I think it's a nice way to, to kind of really, hopefully encompass some of the, the really meaningful stuff coming out of COP. So yeah, that, that one, that was a, a great shock, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, they sent their longtime negotiator. We did know that, that there was a really positive relationship with that negotiation team, but I don't think anybody expected the announcement. <laughs> so it's, it's another positive. Yeah, no, I think that that was a, that was a big surprise and I think a, a really exciting one and I think uh, really, really positive news. So on that note of super positive news, guys, I think we should uh, we should start getting into the substance of this one. Patrick, do you want to uh, give us a, a few seconds on our guest here today? Christopher Jackson, um, unknown to any listener of this podcast, is, is gracing us with uh, an opportunity to question him about his company, Proteum. Uh, but but more, more seriously, Proteum has been kind of driving forward kind of the kind of the hydrogen agenda and looking to develop projects, particularly in the UK. Chris, as, as many people will know, has been a very, very prominent kind of spokesperson and commenter, uh, commentator even through his time at the World Bank into this time with Proteum developing and driving forward kind of applications for hydrogen. They've had a very big announcement with uh, uh, ABMVEV very, very recently. I think we're going to let him talk about that. But, and I think um, we will even have uh, a uh, Tom Brewer from ABMVEV will be joining us in the uh, post-interview uh, portion today. So this is, we got all sorts of high-level high headline guests here today, Patrick. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm just interested if I, if I can uh, put my podcast question commentator hat on. I'm interested, you know, to hear, hear what's next for Proteum because, you know, there's a lot of folks looking at the development space and, and being an energy services company is, is, is a huge, hugely important factor in, in building the kind of the future we're expecting. For hydrogen, that transition is opaque to most people, um, and therefore this is going to be a fun one for for lots of different reasons. Unfortunately for Chris. <laughs> <laughs> All right, perfect. Well, let's see if we can get Chris on the line, huh? Well, Chris, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and what Proteum does? 
sure. Well, look, um, it's definitely quite strange being on this side of the, the table, I guess, or virtual table. But thank you very much, Alicia, for stepping up. Um, I couldn't have had a better co-host, so I feel very privileged here. Yeah, so I guess for people who don't know very much about me, the bits that are probably salient without doing the full life story was most of my work in the World Bank which I think is where a lot of people came into contact with me. I initially was focused on, um, from people who don't know, the World Bank's knowledge hub is called ESMAP. Uh, it's where actually quite a lot of really interesting insights come. So if anyone's ever used Global Solar Atlas or the Global Wind Atlas, the free digital tools, they were both developed by ESMAP and funded by ESMAP. A lot of um, quite interesting studies and ways of assessing uh, SDG7 reporting or a lot of technical sort of analysis on how countries can transition towards net zero and integrate renewables is all done by ESMAP. And so I sort of started there. And actually, I guess what got me focused on on hydrogen sort of uh, in the professional sense really was uh, being involved in that piece of work and um, working on SDG7 reporting where the World Bank held the hat. And so with my then boss, Tigran Pavanian and Susanna uh, Dobrokova, we wrote the renewable energy chapter for SDG7 reporting. And we kind of basically said, look, people are talking too much about renewable power. We're not talking about decarbonizing heat and transport. And that kind of was a theme that I think has stuck with me in my professional career. So led to eventually me and Patrick actually co-authoring a piece, um, which is our first public piece on decarbonizing the mining sector, which God almighty, the amount of approvals we needed to get that thing over the line, but we did. And and from there led to you know me pushing the team and having some great support internally to do the World Bank's first um, ever internal funding for green hydrogen. So we then wrote um, the World, uh, World Bank's first green hydrogen paper, Green Hydrogen in Developing Countries. And I think got impatient and said, right, you know, actually, I don't want to just write reports about things. I want to actually go and make things happen. So July 19, choosing, choosing my timing perfectly nine months before COVID, moved back and started Proteum um, at the same time as uh, co-launching this podcast with you guys. And uh, and yes, yeah, so that was, I guess, the kind of the backdrop, really. Um, there's also a little dirty secret of the podcast, which is that actually the reason Patrick and Andrew and I all know each other is through SICE, Johns Hopkins which is our sort of connection. And uh, the other connection, which some people might be aware of, is that our professor who all taught us renewable energy project finance is a gentleman called Marco Dell'Aquila, um, formerly on the board of GE Capital Europe, founder of IJ Global and Inspiratia, um, and also one of the earliest corporate energy, corporate finance renewables companies um, called Power Capital. And he's our chief investment officer at Proteum and a very old friend and mentor of mine. So that's kind of, a, I think, a, a little bit of context that not everyone knows, but I think is quite relevant for this conversation. Definitely. Gotta say, it's almost like you've you've heard these sort of introductions before a few times and had had one prepped. But uh, I think I think maybe maybe to dive into the the Proteum stuff specifically, you know, how did Proteum start, and and like you know, what is the approach to development, and maybe how did how did that that thinking evolve over the the last couple of years? No, I mean it's a it's a good one, Patrick. I mean, as you'll know, um, you know, part of the the earliest iterations of Proteum actually was you know twenty fifteen writing about. The fact that we were having all these curtailment payments in the UK for all wind and soda and trying to figure out what we do with that. And so I wrote this paper on hydrogen again for Marco, who then became chief investment officer. So that sort of for a while has been sort of percolating often on the kind of consulting side. And Patrick, you and me obviously used to talk about this a lot in DC. So when Prodium started, there was a sort of big question of, are we going to be a sort of specialist hydrogen consultancy? Is that kind of the route we go down? And I was quite fortunate. I'd spent quite a bit of time with a company in the UK called Temporis Developments which at the time was led by a gentleman called Harry Bond, and they'd built the most successful um, onshore single-site wind developer in the UK. They'd done 50 single-site wind turbines out of 600 in the UK. They'd done a lot of solar. They'd done biogas, biomass, and they'd started to do EV charging. 
Uh, and for a bit of background here, the COO of that, Ian Johnston, is now the CEO of Osprey, which is one of the most famous EV charging companies in the UK. And one of the other members of the team, uh, Mark Henderson, who's on our pro team advisory board, became the chief investment officer of GridServe, which also is another very well-known leading EV charging company. So all of that development experience meant that actually I sort of saw that a lot of the challenges around net zero are not what we think they are. It's actually to do with people. It's to do with understanding people and systems and how you pull things together. And I'm not an engineer by background. I know enough to be dangerous, but I realized if I was going to really have an impact, I needed to be more than just writing papers. It needed to be on that people side. So that's kind of where Proteum said, right, if we're going to unlock the green hydrogen market potential, what we really need to do is make this as simple as possible for customers. We need to actually provide sort of an integrated solution that pulls together development of land, that pulls together an understanding of how different technologies work, that's focused on customers have a need to get to net zero rather than customers need hydrogen. And that's an important nuance, right? Hydrogen should be seen as a value add and should be seen as something that is helping to resolve a problem rather than a commodity that just needs to be sold. And I quite often make this point that it's a technology, it's not a commodity. And so when we then looked at Proteum, we said, oh, how do we do that? So we came to this idea of hydrogen as an energy service, a concept we call a HESCO. So we then effectively will work with a partner, sit down with them, identify what their decarbonization needs are, Based on that, we will then put together a scope of assets that we need to develop. That may include solar, wind, electrolyzers, compressors, storage, um, and even further downstream might include hydrogen refueling stations or even on-site equipment like boilers or CHP. Once we've identified that, we then go through a sort of very typical project finance approach. So we create a special purpose vehicle. And the idea then is that we um, go down a hydrogen as an energy service model, HESCO, and effectively we look to secure long-term offtake agreements with the counterparty. So instead of the counterparty taking upfront capex investment where they can't get a payback, you know, within the one to four year band that they have, but they know that they need to invest in it. And without them having to take technology risk, we can give them access to a net zero solution or a solution that can help them to materially decarbonize various parts of their energy requirement. That might be transport, that might be heat, that might be power or a blend of those assets. And really importantly as well, what we're doing is actually allowing investors to directly target decarbonization. And I think that was an insight we also had, which was that investors want to support decarbonization, but actually getting exposure in their portfolio to that type of investment is quite difficult. You know, they can buy a listed shit, you know, company like El Kid, but they're buying multiple different things when they're doing that. They're not specifically supporting decarbonization. Um, and even buying a gas transfer company or buying ITM, you're not really getting exposure to projects. You're taking technology risk, which is not really what they want to do. So we said, well, we, we want to strip all of that out and actually make it a little bit cleaner. So then we have three verticals as a business. So we have consumer-facing industrials. So that includes food and drink, pharmaceutical retailers, businesses that we believe have made very sensible and strong commitments towards decarbonizing by 2025 and 2030. So they can't rely on the gas grid or the power grid to decarbonize. They are going to need specific solutions for them. And they don't have the balance sheet to do it on every single site. Even biggest of the companies in the world can't afford all the capex to do every single site in the world. So that's one core focus. Tied to that then commercial transport, because obviously there's a lot of logistics work, a lot of HGVs, and a lot of um, you know even smaller LCVs tied to those types of customers. So how do we work with their third-party logistics firms and their own businesses? And then uh, the sort of final component, which we also got into, is green hydrogen and aviation, which you know is obviously an interesting area. It's not necessarily going to be a massive market in terms of hydrogen demand in the next five years. But what we feel is important is that the technical challenges around that are so difficult. How do you safely deploy and implement hydrogen infrastructure into an airport space where there's multiple different moving elements, there's multiple different contractors and parties. And if you can do that, the insights from that actually allow you to unlock lots of other opportunities like ports, 
which have a similar set of dynamics, marine ports, and even inner city areas and large depots. So that's those are the sort of cores of Protium. Um, UK focus for now, but very much um, working towards opportunities in Europe, partly through one of our investors and partners called Falcor, who also backed um, Liquid Wind, which is a Scandinavian developer, and Regas, which is a Portuguese hydrogen developer, and also opportunities in North America. Um, and that's partly tied to a uh, bit of hydrogen IP that we license um, from a company called Jericho which is a uh, unique hydrogen boiler called a direct combustion chamber, which some people might be aware of as a product we're looking to deploy commercially in the UK at our whiskey distillery with Brook Laddick up in Isla, which is sort of the first, or we think will be the world's first genuinely zero emission boiler technology, which uses just hydrogen and just oxygen from an electrolyzer that's stored till when it's needed. And there's no NOx, there's no SOx, there's no CO2, there's no CO. It's just high temperature heat, high efficiency, and the water's recycled out. So another kind of interesting component of, I guess, the broader protein story. I think I think that holds the record for uh, longest answer to uh, to the second question we've asked. So, well done, Chris. Well done. Yeah, my bad. <laughs> well, I was just fixed. <laughs> I mean, that's really. I don't. I, I'm tired just hearing about it, let alone <laughs> doing all those activities. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering just how. How is the hydrogen space as a developer? And, and I know you said previously that you're not really focusing on hydrogen exclusively, that it's just it's a technology and it's, it's involved, but you, you have to look at the whole picture. But what are the major challenges you see in getting bigger and larger projects um, off the ground? Like what, what, what is really the roadblocks that, that you see now? No, it's, it's a good question. So I, I think part of our model is that we're a distributed model. So, you know, we build around a specific customer and we try and focus on how we can build infrastructure around that specific customer. And I think part of that is for the reasons I've articulated before, but actually part of it is to do a development timeline and the maturity of the market. So our thesis is that this of 10 to 50 megawatt market is the key to unlocking and enabling the green hydrogen transition, because that's kind of a bite size at which all investors are open to exploring and engaging with banks are open to as our insurers, because it's enough capital on the table to be interesting and meaningful, but not enough that if something, if there was a loss through a commercial failure or some form of technical failure, that they can't live with that. And equally, people who are talking about the 100 megawatt and the gigawatt scale, frankly, the factories are not there yet. Yes, they're being built, but actually they aren't, there aren't 100 megawatt or gigawatt units in the field yet. And they may well come, but that is, you know, in my view, certainly going to be you know late 2020s earliest so really 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 to get everyone confident and to build the technical capability you have to focus on that section so the barriers then really come down to things that are very mundane but policymakers don't often understand and it's things like planning right so for me what's really important is that we can say to our customers that actually when we're producing green hydrogen that we're adding additionality i think that's a really important point right you know there are some hydrogen business models where people just own the electrolyzer in the downstream and they'll try and partner with someone on the upstream and we don't and that's where we're a bit unique and we'll find out whether that's a terrible decision or not but we do the upstream bit too we do our own soda and we do our own wind so we can say to customers this is where we're adding additional renewables. And we think that's also how we engage with policymakers. But that creates its own set of dynamics, because if you have to develop solar and wind in parallel with developing hydrogen, you kick out timeline, right? So, you know, maybe I can permit electrolyzer in a year, but solar, I definitely can't permit in a year. Solar, you know, quickest might be two, maybe even four. Wind, I can't do faster than four, right? Three, four years is probably the fastest. And to be honest, there's projects in the UK that have taken up to 10 years to permit, assuming they don't fail. So, you know, that's the challenge I think that there's a development market will have 
you know, is how do you basically try and blend those things together? Now, we have a strategy around how we're going to do that. Um, but it's a constant area of discussion we're having with government, which is we want to support your ambition of additionality. We don't want to just take more power from the grid without adding more renewables. And to be fair, the renewables industry has also said, especially the renewable hydrogen industry, that part of our role is to facilitate the integration of more renewables. So if that's true, we should be adding more renewables into the system. But that just adds time. And, and I think that's where we are definitely hearing more traction. And especially for a distributed model, if you want to be near where demand is, that often means you're going to be in more built up areas. That often means you're going to be in more planning and sensitive areas where what you're doing is more visual. You know, everyone would love you to build a big hydrogen site in the middle of nowhere, remote Scotland or remote East Anglia or Cornwall, but you're not near demand. And actually, it doesn't really help anybody because you just increase the costs, you increase the complexity, you don't improve the reliability. And we as a society have to have a more grown up conversation around the fact that, yeah, if I want really fast charging EV for trucks, I'm going to have to have more transmission lines in. If I want to replace homes with heat pumps, I'm going to have to accept much more disruption to homes and streets and you know, big batteries and substations appearing near my house. And hydrogen is not unique in that. This is a broader energy transition problem, but we are clearly affected by that, too. Well, on that note, Chris, I, you know, I want to I want to learn a little bit more about the story of Chris Jackson, right, and his experience from in uh, in founding what is uh, you know a, a company in a in a relatively new and you know, unique and innovative space, right? So, what what was it like to and what were your experiences building a company from the ground up in the energy transition space, but also uh, in you know specifically in the hydrogen space? Um, honestly, I think people thought we were totally insane. Um, I, I don't think I think it took about a year for my dad to say the word electrolyzer correctly. It's exactly the answer I was looking it, for. It, you know, it, it's taken probably a year and a half for my family to explain to, to to be sort of able to explain what hydrogen is, right? You know, and and by the way, that's not to cast aspersions on them. That's just that if you're not in the hydrogen world, you know, you do need to hear it a lot, and even people who are hearing it a lot every day weren't picking it up, right? So, you know, the amount of times we would have had, and we've still, we've been in this position now where we'd start a conversation with people in like January 20, say, and nine months later, they'd come back and go, you're still the smartest conversation we've had, but we've now spent nine months reading and we kind of understand where you are now. So let's try this again. It just happened continuously. Only there was a podcast available to help people. You would be surprised by how often that came up, um, which is still strange having people who are like, our entire family have listened to you on the podcast. And that's definitely a little bit of an odd one for me. I mean, it's it's really nice, but it's definitely not so comfortable, right? I mean, you're kind of going, I, I, I don't know, because obviously that wasn't what we meant to do at the beginning, right? I mean, my experience has been that uh, it starts with that comment, right? Where you get that comment like, oh, I, I love that podcast. And then the next thing I hear is, you know who was great? Alicia Eastman. So, you know, that's always the, that's always the exactly, follow-up. Right, exactly. So, um, no, no doubt. <laughs> but, you know, so, I mean, so that, that was definitely like, you know, it took time. And I mean, it's also worth bearing in mind, right, that when we were, you know, so we started July 19. In January 2020, the company was basically me, Marco, and um, Jack Eastwood, who's now our chief operating officer. So it's three of us. We went into COVID lockdown in the UK in March. So essentially, we built an entire team during lockdown, right? Because lockdown in the UK really only formally ended, you know, the last final time we ended it was, let's call it April, May 21, right? So between then, where we had three people in January 20, and now we're 26, right? We've also got three offices. We've moved office four times in two years because between lockdowns and 
team sizes moving, things just adjusted. But, you know, we're now 15, 16 people coming sporadically COVID safe days on uh, Southwark in South London. We've got a second office in Caerphilly. And I think as of uh, a couple of weeks ago, we've also got a base now we're putting up in Glasgow for the team there. So it has been very strange. Um, but, you know, equally, there are we talked about COP, I guess, earlier, but, you know, it was quite funny. I was walking home and there's a Marks and Spencers and outside of Marks and Spencers is a black cab with a big Fortescue green hydrogen sign on it saying green hydrogen is the future, but we must invest in it now. You know, and there's buses going past my route where I cycle, which are saying, you know, dear fossil fuel industry, green hydrogen is the secret that you hoped we'd never find, right? The idea that green hydrogen would be on a bus or on the tube would have been a completely insane concept when we started Proteum. So we've gone from no one understanding what we were trying to do, no one understanding what hydrogen was, to everybody is really interested and excited about it. And they're desperately trying to find people that can actually deliver viable products and who've actually got technical capability. I, I think that's so true. I mean, and you can also see it in the movements of hydrogen experts going from one company to another. I mean, we all, I'm not going to say people's names, but there's there's lots of, of experts that we love and it's not hard to keep track. Six months later, they're at another company and then another company. And I think Patrick just stole somebody from Shell, actually, a good hydrogen guy. <laughs> he did. A listener to this podcast, so he's just heard himself be called out. Yeah. <laughs> he's a good guy, so it's good he moved over. Um, yeah, well, actually, I mean, everything that you talk, you're talking about is so exciting, but um, I think the the beverage um, announcement, you know, that you made, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, and how that works. Um, I think that's, that's you know, really interesting. Uh, sure. So for listeners who aren't aware, um, in sort of just prior to COP, um, the UK Prime Minister announced um, 10 billion of um, inward investment into clean energy. And one of those was a 100 million pound project between Proteum and uh, Budweiser UK to decarbonize their largest brewery in South Wales, the Maygold Brewery. Um, we've got a, I think you guys have got Tom Brewer, um, who's coming on later, who's technical expert at um, Budweiser UK, otherwise known as AB InBev. Far more knowledgeable, who speak to it far better than I can. But just to give you guys a sense of scale, 8% of UK beer is brewed out of this brewery, 4 million cans a day. It's a 58-acre industrial estate. So it's it's big, right? So people think of these industries as being small, but actually in aggregate, they're massive. And when you look at the UK, um, 34 million tons of CO2 is in the industrial clusters and 30 million is distributed. But strip out the two steel sites and it's actually less than 20 million tons in the clusters. So where this is really exciting for us as a project is actually making it very clear to people, including investors and government, one of the hardest things about decarbonization is going to be sites like this. They're not in a cluster, but they're really important to the economy. They support a lot of local jobs. Um, and actually, often they are big global brands, but they still you know, want technical help and technical support. And imagine what it's like for the SMEs in a similar position, where instead of having you know, several hundred sites, they've got one or two. Right? It's mission critical that those sites run. So with Budweiser, what we're looking to do is a fully integrated green hydrogen project. So we're developing solar, wind um, and green hydrogen production from electrolysis. It's obviously interesting because actually we're using, you know, we're working with a site that produces a lot of highly purified water for the brewing process. People might not know much about the topography of that particular area, but actually um, when the Victorians dug the railway between Bristol and Cardiff, they hit a deep water seam and actually it kept flooding the railway line. And so the reason why steel and paper mills and breweries were there 
was to try and use the water. So you're in an area that has some of the best wind and solar resources in the UK that has an abundance of fresh water and that's also purifying fresh water. It's also right on the M4, which is one of the biggest motorways in the UK and a well-known hub that for a long time people have talked about as a hydrogen corridor. Um, and a final bit of trivia for listeners, River Simple, the hydrogen fuel cell company is based in Monmouthshire, which is actually the same region as Mega. So the council are leasing uh, River Simple cars as part of sort of River Simple's proof of market. So all of those reasons make it really exciting. Um, and I think it's part of our idea, again, of if you can build these relationships with these brands and you can help to give them a genuinely meaningful solution, um, it actually has all these fantastic network effects, but also it helps them to move faster because, you know, these are organizations that do care. I mean, if you talk to the guys at AB and Bev, the passion they have for sustainability is massive. And I know they're a client and the cliche is that I just say that, but, you know, if you do sit and talk to them and you look at the background of a lot of the people there, it's really impressive. And they've done a huge amount and they continue to do a huge amount. I mean, Budweiser has driven fuel cell hydrogen vehicles now in three continents, in China, in the US and in Belgium. Um, you know, so this is actually sort of their fourth market. They'll have had fuel cell trucks in, you know, and they're a company that is desperately trying to prove because they are so consumer front facing. They care about net zero. You know, you may even see the 100 percent renewable electricity on the beer cans sometimes on the Budweiser bottles. Right. Um, so, you know, we're really excited to be part of that process, decarbonizing the vehicles, replacing some of the natural gas at the site with hydrogen and also decarbonizing some of the power as well. That is so, I mean, that's so mind boggling. Like, I, I thought you were just doing the beverage side of it, but I mean, it's really involves so many aspects. I'm just wondering, now that you have um, expertise in this space, is there any uh, orthodoxy to beverages or, or beer or, or whiskey, anything in this vertical that, that gives you an advantage to just replicate it? Does it make it easier to replicate these projects um, around the world? Uh, well, so I, I think there definitely is. I mean, starting with the obvious thing that you've already developed a relationship with an organization that, you know, you understand their process, they understand your process, and you're just building goodwill and good faith. So I think that's, all, that's a really obvious starting point. Um, the sites aren't always the same. Um, they rhyme, but they're, they're not identical, if that makes sense. Um, so, so, there is, so there is some of that. Um, we're actually doing quite a lot of work across that chain, though. Um, there's a few things we haven't announced yet, but we're, you know, we're also sort of going up and down parts of that value chain. So not just the brewing and distilling side, but a little bit earlier and a bit later as well. We're doing quite a lot on food. Again, um, we haven't been able to release it, but there's a client, quite a large client we're working with in the food space, um, too, actually. Um, some of the interesting aspects there is also where people use oxygen. And I think that's where there is suddenly a bit of a competitive advantage, because if you start working in some of these industries where they're actually using a whole variety of different types of energy requirements. Then you can start to look at some configurations that are quite interesting, right? People have known about this in the wastewater industry, for example, which is that actually if you can put oxygen from an electrolyzer into a wastewater process, you can accelerate decomposition and reduce the amount of electricity used on site for the air fans. So if you've, for example, got a gas CHP running on biogas, but there's a constraint on the gas grid, you know, maybe you actually run it on your own system for an electrolyzer and you buffer some of that, the oxygen you can use immediately and that actually saves you using electricity draw from that and the hydrogen you store and you use for another time. Or if there's excess wind, you can just take it off the grid. So I think these types of optimizations people kind of historically have ignored are going to be where you add the percents on efficiency, right? Where you can use heat from compressors, where you can show that actually the storage piece, so land is really valuable, right? Nine Tesla ISO containers might give you 33 megawatt hours of storage. One ton of hydrogen is the same, right? So think about footprint, right? 
if you can start to get your head around those sorts of numbers and start to think about how you tie into processes, suddenly all of these things get so much better, so much faster. Um, but you can't just come at it from hydrogen as a commodity. You can't just say, I'm just going to build a big electrolyzer and sell it. It's not going to work. People are trying to short circuit the process in our view. And that's where we think we do have a competitive advantage, because if you've understood that and you get it, you know how to start. And I think that is hopefully where we think we can replicate what we're doing. And we're building digital tools to try and speed that up and make that faster too. So this is the perfect moment for the, the question that I, I, I said I was going to ask in the, the intro, Chris, which is what's next? What's next for Proteum? What are the what are the maybe the markets you're kind of contemplating? I know you've alluded to a couple here, but maybe what what are the things that you're excited for in the next phase for for Proteum and, and what are the plans? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so something we want to do is, and we've already been doing some work around this, some is public, is um, around digital twins. Um, we genuinely want to and believe that actually the future of development is about being able to not only plan and visualize what your project is going to look like before you build them, but then once you've built them, actually to be able to figure out, well, what went wrong between what we thought was going to happen and what actually happened and iterate so that the next time around you've picked that up and you keep iterating so that you get smarter and smarter and that you know, we don't want to sell that commodity. We think it's too valuable. That data is too important. So we want to keep that and build that. And that's how one of the ways that we think, to Alicia's earlier question, we stay ahead. And also, frankly, how we can scale up and replicate faster at reduced cost. Um, the third is definitely going to be international. And um, there's no doubt about it. There's there's a huge amount of appetite for the type of model and approach we have. You know, we are working with multinational clients that have sites. You know, we work with partners like Petrofac. We work with companies like Siemens Energy. You know, these are big multinationals that can take us into different markets alongside our clients. And we're hoping that in other markets, we'll find new partners too who want to help us and open doors. And that's conversations that you know, once I'm finished with this blast of fundraising, I'm going to try to spend more time doing is talking to people. So I think there's a lot of wins and things that we're going to move from. So real operational assets, international, um, bringing on really brilliant team and really announcing at scale a lot more projects and uh, slowly working on our plans for global green hydrogen domination. Well, I, I, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. I'm pretty excited to watch it happen. But uh, Chris, I think we've we've exhausted our time with you today. But uh, thank you for making the time for letting us uh, turn the tables on you. And uh, most importantly, thank you, uh, thank you, Alicia, for joining us. You know, if you ever want to be a podcast host, we've got a spot for you. Hey, why are you tossing Chris out just because he has so much work? <laughs> I think this is ex uh, Andrew's exit strategy becoming manifest here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it anymore, guys. That's it. Anytime. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you both. Really appreciate you both making the time. And Chris, exciting story behind Proteum. So this is really good to, uh, to hear you explain it uh, on the podcast. It was an awesome conversation. So thanks to you, man. Come on again soon. Like maybe host the show or two. <laughs> I know, right? Cheers, guys. This episode of Everything About Hydrogen is brought to you by Bayotech. Bayogas, Bayotech's gas-as-a-service option, provides customers with low-cost hydrogen on demand. Get dependable access to as much hydrogen as you require when you need it. Bayotech produces the hydrogen locally and distributes it via high-pressure transport trailers. Avoiding long transportation distances saves money while minimizing emissions. You pay for the fuel by the kilogram, avoiding high infrastructure costs. Bayotech makes hydrogen easy. Visit Bayotech.us today to get low-cost, low-carbon hydrogen delivered on demand.
Tom, thanks very much for, for joining us today. I, I think perhaps let's let's kick off by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and um, a little bit about what uh, AB InBev are doing. Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm Tom Brewer. Um, I, I work in uh, the world's largest brewing company. My dad likes that. Um, I, I get lots of mileage out of the name. People tend to remember me um, from the surname, which is useful sometimes. Sometimes it would be um, better to be able to be forgotten. Um, I, I'm a, a environmental uh, sustainability expert um, in our innovation team. We have a global team, the global team that support all of the zones. The zones support all of the breweries, uh, and I'm one of the people that gets uh, pushed around different places to to help on various different innovation uh, projects specifically related to sustainability. I, I don't get involved in every sustainability project; uh, that would be impossible. But I I get involved in the interesting ones or the ones that need help, or the ones that are going badly wrong, or, or the ones that perhaps nobody else wants. Uh, in this case, I'm, I'm involved very heavily in hydrogen. I'm the global technical lead on, on hydrogen for the company and trying to make sure that we make sense of it uh, and understand that. What are AB InBev doing on sustainability? A lot. They're doing a lot of, a lot of good stuff. I would always say no, not enough. <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't say that publicly, so don't tell anyone that I said that. But, uh, you know, th- there's always more we could do. And I think we know that, and I think we're, we're trying to do more. And to your point, Tom, I think uh, I think it's probably too short of a time. Unfortunately, we can't keep you for hours with us to cover all that ABN Bev is trying to do with sustainability. So let's focus on that hydrogen piece. And if maybe you could tell us a little bit about how important hydrogen is to the future of brewing and to what AB InBev is doing and how you guys are utilizing it, that would be fantastic. Sure. We are one of, I think, relatively few companies that can say that we are using hydrogen. Uh, we have made uh, product deliveries on two continents. I think, we're the, I think we're the only company that can say that at the moment. Or in, we, you know, We've been doing it for a while, so perhaps one of the first companies. And we've, we've got deliveries happening in, in China. It's half a dozen vehicles uh, moving our beer around in, in China. We've, we've done a, a relatively famous delivery in um, St. Louis that you've spoken um, about before um, and won't dwell on that one too much. What we're doing here in, um, in Europe is, um, is a project to not only deliver our beer with hydrogen trucks, but to um, generate our own hydrogen so that we can do that efficiently. Um, you know, the chicken and egg problem that everyone talks about with hydrogen is that oh, we'll do that when it comes along, when there's a grid infrastructure in place. But uh, if you're waiting for that to happen, we'll be here forever. So the beautiful thing about brewing is our product is relatively heavy. So it all radiates out from from hubs to our customers and our trucks go from our hub and out to our customers and back again with the empties. And, and, and having a fueling station at the hub at the brewery makes sense. So we're able to create our own infrastructure and convert our fleet at the same time as decarbonize our fleet. It, it sort of makes sense. Now, that's that's cool. I mean, that, that is cool. But the thing that's really cool um, is that because we're doing a, a hydrogen generation system at our brewery, we can then integrate that facility with our brewery and and get added benefit from that. So, for example, um, one of the things I'm probably most excited about, it, it's a relatively small thing, but I'm most excited about is, you know, an electrolyzer generates heat. Breweries need heat. So we can take the, the waste heat from the electrolyzer um, and, and use that to, to heat our brewery. So, you know, an, another thing that's quite cool is, of course, we'll need to make more hydrogen than we need. 
um, of course you need more because you can't have less. Um, so you've got a budget for days which aren't quite as sunny or quite as windy. So you need to have more than you, you need. And if you're going to have more than you need on a sunny or windy day, um, what are you going to do with that excess? Well, we could sell it on the market. Great, wonderful. Or, or we could and we could um, blend it within into our brewery to 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 help fuel our, our brewery, the excess hydrogen that we don't need for running our truck fleet. We've got this really cool project. And I say we, um, I, I kind of mean me and Chris, like, you know, AB and Bev and Proteum, if you like, we've got a partnership. Proteum are doing all the hard work um, and we're um, helping them um, size it correctly, specifically for us um, and give, giving them a guaranteed customer um, for a, a, a long period of time. Um, but yeah, Proteum are doing most of the work. So maybe maybe just to, to, to kind of uh, dive into this a little bit further, you know, you, you spoke about that need for um, kind of availability and, and managing the, the kind of the spikes and, and troughs of um, renewable generation. You know, how important is that that kind of uh, sustainable profile for, for ABM Bev and, and what kind of, I don't know, have you have you made decisions about kind of those um, kind of color preferences for lack of a like a more su- or a clear maybe way of asking that? Yeah, um, I'll answer the color question first. Hashtag no blue. And uh, let's get that trending. Yeah. Uh, green is our preference. I, I kind of don't really understand why we would say anything else to that. You know, I understand why other people are working in that area because this is a big problem and we've got to we've got to decarbonize and there are other ways of doing it. But I don't understand why we wouldn't do the right thing now. Why would we do the sort of right thing or half right thing for the next 20 years and then do the right thing in 20 years time do the right thing now? Um, what we need is wind turbines and solar panels and let's get them up and running and make our hydrogen green. We are going to have hydrogen in 2050 in large quantities. So let's do it right and learn from the experience. So I forgot the first half of your question. I think I think I think you nailed it because uh, it's a, it's the question of managing that that storage um, and, and kind of availability. I think that doesn't yet matter to us much as a business. You know, we have contracts in many countries already, US, yes, and the UK, yes, to have all of our electricity supplied from renewable renewable sources. So, you know, there's a massive great big um, wind um, ranch, Thunder Ranch in, in the States, um, some big solar arrays in the, in the UK, clean earth wind turbine near to our brewery in Magal, you know, and, and we've got, We've got renewable electricity and all of the electricity we use um, is less than all of the electricity we produce. Now, that's a lot of it's via virtual PPA. And that makes sense in today's market. Um, But we've got to be careful that in the longer term future, that's that's going to be more complicated. And, yeah, we need to worry about (laughs) the peaks and troughs. What about when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? Now, in reality, this the sun's always shining somewhere and the wind's always blowing somewhere. But. I think when it comes to the interim, when it comes to uh, security of supply, it's really nice not to have to worry about somebody else cutting off the gas pipe for whatever reason. It's nice to be in, in control of our own energy source. The wind turbine that's private wire for, for Magel Brewery is 25% of the electricity. We, we get that. That's, that's fixed. The contract price, that's, that's there for the life of the wind turbine. We don't have to worry about the price. of the electricity price goes up by 400%. It doesn't matter because it doesn't affect that. And, and that's a lovely freedom to be in. Um, security supply, you know, 
there have been some diesel crises um, in recent in recent months. I couldn't get diesel for love no money for my car. Um, I'm still driving a diesel car. Shh, don't tell anyone that one. And uh, not for long, not for much longer. But um, you know that's a problem. My sister rang me up. <laughs> I've got my battery electric. I'm not worried. <laughs> and uh, it's it's great, isn't it? Security supply. So yes, there are big problems when we become. Um, uh, totally reliant on renewables, but there are lots of solutions to those big problems, and we're working on that. Hydrogen does help with that. Okay, Tom, just just one one prominent kind of question in the space generally. You know, there, there's a lot of conversation between fuel cell vehicles and and battery electric vehicles. I suppose from a, a brewer's perspective, what's the, the 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 kind of selection point here, and what's the approach? Good question. I think from a brewer's perspective, we don't care. You know, we're trying to get our beer to the market. And, um, you know, we, if we wanted to do really sustainable beer, we would brew it at our brewery and tell our customers to come to the brewery and pick it up on their bicycles. But we can't do that in today's world. It's not practical. So we've got to use some kind of a delivery system and, and that has to be electrified. So we're technology agnostic. We're going to use both. In fact, we are already using both. But um, uh, what the ratio is, that's an interesting question. And and I think, you know, I guess I get uh, annoyed by the argument because it it really is dependent on the vehicle you're you're using you know if you've got a a vehicle that's traveling 20 kilometers down the road to to drop off 20 you know, 15 miles sorry uh down the road to drop off a a load of beer and then uh, turning around and coming back again well that's a battery electric type scenario unless of course the vehicle's driving all the time 24 7 and doesn't have time to stop and refuel in which case either going to have to have battery swapping technology or or a fuel cell it depends on the scenario you know if you've got a vehicle traveling 800 kilometers we don't have that in this country but if, if you did um then you need to have longer range vehicles and again a battery vehicle doesn't really make sense for that um so I, the question isn't is it battery electric or fuel cell it's it's obviously electric. How big is the hydrogen um, tank and how big is the is the fuel cell? Um, because the fuel cell might not be non-existent in some scenarios and you might just have a battery or it might exist and you might have a big hydrogen tank. And, and that's a, a very interesting design piece and, and something that we could talk about forever. Yeah. And Tom, I think we're going to take our questions a little bit different order than we had initially thought. And I'm going to let Patrick ask the fun questions about when we get to have our hydrogen, our, our hydrogen beer potentially, but also our beer delivered by hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. But I think, uh, you know, as the first part of this episode was a discussion with Chris about Proteum and what Proteum is doing with AB InBev and this really exciting project you guys are, are working on. And I think Chris also left a little bit of room to hear from AB InBev as well. And be delighted to have your thoughts. And so the question is, why did you choose to work with Proteum? And what is the nature of the, of the contractual relationship? What are you guys working on uh, with Proteum? And, and kind of where do you, how do you see that evolving? It's, sometimes it feels like two mates um, just hanging out and getting on with uh, something. Chris is very, yeah, Chris is a lot of personality there, right? He always, and that's part of the fun of working with Chris. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Chris's. I think um, uh, I, I do a lot of work with universities. I'm, you know, I'm in innovation. And I've got quite a strong link with the University of Nottingham. And the, they introduced me to Chris. I was at, you know, at the same time, I, I've got this um, portfolio of sustainability projects um, that I'm part of a team working on. And uh, this portfolio of projects, we've got 29 different initiatives. And, you know, one of them is, is hydrogen. And 
that had been the case for a while. Um, and about this time, two years ago, one of my um, friends at, univers- at the University of Nottingham uh, rang me up and said, look, I've got a contact here you'd be really interested in. Um, he wants to talk to you about hydrogen. And at the time, I wasn't really looking for a, a one-stop shop. I wasn't looking for somebody to come and manage this project. I was thinking it was more 2030 and I just needed to be ready and make sure it was all part of the program. I, and I was just making sure I was up to date with what a Nell doing, what a Siemens Energy doing, you know, make, make sure I knew, um, you know, Heisen Trucks are producing this many and we're, here we are and, 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 and knowing where we're at so that we were ready to move when the time was coming. And, and I wasn't I wasn't quite at the point of, of wanting to start a program of work. I had thought about this integrative piece, but I still thought it was too expensive. And um, uh, so I, I met with Chris and we had a chat and uh, took him for a tour around the brewery. And I said to him very honestly, I you know, didn't think that this had legs. Um, Chris convinced me otherwise. Um, I'm quite difficult to convince um, when I don't believe in something. And uh, Chris is actually, you know, he's not... Um, just good at convincing people but he's actually pretty knowledgeable and uh, he answered every question I have and every challenge I gave him and and then critically when he couldn't answer you know he didn't do what a lot of people do do and sort of fake an answer to cover over the cracks um he, you know when I found the, the gaps in his knowledge um uh, which again I'm quite good at doing um he um he was very honest about it and and I could s- suddenly see this this idea working um, in a way that I hadn't really realised was cost effective at the time. And so we, we've looked at this as a company before and we um, concluded only a couple of years ago that it wasn't cost effective. And um, and then together with Chris, we, you know, he and I came up with a, a proposal that does sort of work. So, yeah, that's why I'm working for it. Uh, that's how I got to find out about you guys, because Chris mentioned the podcast and then um, I've... Uh, I've even force fed it on my my two children. They've had to listen to this too, and uh, and that's quite good fun. And uh, yeah, so I feel like I had to listen. To some, I've listened to every episode, and and some of them twice. I had to listen to another one, one or two of them twice because I had to answer my daughter's questions. And there, there. Well, and sometimes yeah, we get we get off track every once in a while, Tom, as you may have noticed. So sometimes yeah. you have to listen to listen to them twice for clarity purposes. Just <laughs> anyway. no, it wasn't for clarity. It was because I had to remember how to answer her technical questions and. Uh, um, the SNAM interview, the one over SNAM, that was a that was a good one. There was a lot of questions that she had on that one, and uh, so I had to draw. That's a that. that's a fan that's a fan favorite. The soon to add the Proteum AB InBev to the fan favorite list, though. Well, well sorry, so, Patrick. Yeah. I, I think you had the next question. Indeed, no, it, this is it. But but it, all all of this and 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 it's a wonderful story. But it, but it leads to that one final big question of when can we expect to be able to drink a hydrogen Budweiser for lack of a, a kind of a, a, an other alternative product range, or maybe there are a range that we can look forward to. So if you mean a, a hydrogen, a Budweiser that's delivered on a vehicle that's fueled with hydrogen, you can do that already um, in, in China. But if you're, if you're saying that the, the brewery is also using hydrogen fuel, uh, then you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. I think we're, you know, we're looking at a, a, a program of work that's that's ramping up from now. Um, we're in planning process at the moment, so obviously not tomorrow. Um, we've got to get planning permission. We've got to do the environmental impact assessment and all that kind of work. And, uh, you know, it's always possible that the, the government won't give us planning permission in exactly the way we want, in which case we'll have to refigure out how it's going to look and what it's going to look like and, and, and come back. So I think we're talking a couple of years more um, before we'll see it. Um, 
uh, we'll, we'll start building, uh, we'll start having something to be able to run in a meaningful way. Um, but on full scale, it might take four or five years to be to, to be producing um, at the scale that we am, an, anticipate um, in the long term. So, um, but yeah, so I think probably three years time, you'll have, you'll have be able to drink a Budweiser in the UK that's brewed using energy from hydrogen and delivered using energy from hydrogen. Uh, you might have to pick your specific area kind of carefully. Um, it won't be every every Budweiser, um, um, but, but yeah, 2023, 2024. Sounds like we have to book a trip. That's right. I'm ready. Hey, yeah, I'm probably. ready. It, anytime. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'll be there. So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I think from our end, Tom, this has been a, a fantastic conversation and we really, really appreciate you making the time to come on here. And we, uh, as we said before we started recording, we've been uh, excited to have AB InBev on the show uh, for quite some time and specifically to have you as a guest. So thank you so much for making the time out of your schedule to come and join us. No problem. And that does it for us today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Alicia Eastman, co-founder and president of Intercontinental Energy, for joining Patrick and me as a guest co-host on this episode. And to Tom Brewer, Global Environmental Sustainability Lead at AB InBev. And of course, thank you to Chris Jackson, our dear friend, co-host, and founder and CEO of Proteum. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.